Can you fill in the blank? No good deed goes unpunished. It's true of the story of a lifeguard in Florida. In Hollandale Beach, there was a man named Thomas Lopez who jumped into the waters to save a man who was drowning. And because he did this and saved that man, the reward that he got, he was fired. See, this lifeguard went out of his jurisdiction in order to save the man, and so because he did that, he was fired from the job. Or consider a 90-year-old. A 90-year-old in Clearwater Beach, Florida, feeding the homeless along with two Christian pastors. And for his work of doing this, fined $500. See, there was an ordinance that you can't uh, help the homeless within a 500-foot range of residential areas. Or, or maybe closer to home. In St. Joe, Michigan, where we have one of our schools, a, a high school for the Wells Church body, there were two children who were drowning. And the father went out in order to rescue those children. And thankfully, the children were rescued. They were saved. But he lost his life. Is it possible that no good deed goes unpunished? You know, I wonder if that's what high school students think when they don't drink and they don't smoke and they don't cheat and then the cool kids make fun of them. And they put them aside and say, you know, you live such a sheltered life. If you were cool, you would do X, Y, and Z. I wonder if that's what Christians think when they work a job and the boss wants them to do something unethical. And they disagree, and instead of going along with the flow and the pressure, they fight it and they lose their job. I wonder if Christians ever think this. When on a mission from God, they try to share a word from God, a word that they think is needed, a word that they think is helpful, and instead of that actually helping, they pay relationally because it was a word that wasn't wanted. Is it possible that no good deed goes unpunished? You know, friends, that's why I love being in this place, because we get to hear from God and perspective from God and by the way, welcome once again. If you are online, so glad that you're here. But as we turn our attention to the star, to the true beauty, to our Savior Jesus, was the sinless Son of Man punished for doing good? Yes or no? Consider what led to his death. When he was on trial, he gave a word that was very much needed, that he was the Messiah, the great I Am. That's the word that he used. And if everyone would have just turned and believed, they would have had the message they needed to have eternal life. But it is that word that led the crowd to say crucify. It is that proclamation that was not wanted at that time. And so he goes to his death because no good deed goes unpunished. You know, we're concluding our series, Hindsight. And uh, hopefully this has been helpful for you as we just hear God's word, uh, seeing all that we can learn from what has transpired. And something that I think is that, to a degree, we even experienced this during COVID. It was for every student who showed up to that Zoom class when all the others didn't and got the same grade. It was for the worker who could have played hooky and had a right to play hooky and knew the employees that were playing hooky but went to work anyway 
while everyone else still got paid or maybe even got paid more. It is for the relationships where one side gives and gives and gives and gives and it seems like there is no giving on the other end and they suffer for it. Is it true that no good deed goes unpunished? You know, it's something that God warned us about. God said, if I was treated this way, you're going to be treated this way. That no student is above the master. When sending out the disciples, look what he said. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. So for some of you, you even know that to the degree you pursue righteousness is the degree that it's going to get harder for you. You've experienced that. But the question I have for you is this. When that's going on in your life, how do you deal? How do you process that? And how are you doing when it happens? And if there's a voice inside of you that says, not so well, then this word from God is just for you. If you can relate to this on any level, then this word from God will be helpful to you. So today we learn from a man named Asaph. And Asaph is on the struggle bus because he observes the wicked prospering while him who is pursuing righteousness seeming to be punished. And Asaph probably would say what our society has learned to say, that nice guys finish last. Or what we would say is that God's guys and gals finish last, it seems. But Asaph gains perspective. And in that perspective, he has an insight that I hope, if you've ever struggled with this, that you will take away, that it will be the strength that you, you have when getting to those circumstances. So we're going to turn towards Psalm chapter 73, uh, something that we do in honor of the Word of God is we just stand as it's read. Um, some have stood during gospel lessons if you grew up Lutheran, but uh, we know that all of God's Word is inspired. This is God speaking to us, um, how good it is to hear His voice. Um, so we're going to read all of Psalm 73. It's going to be fun. Uh, here it says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity, and their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely I have in vain kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. 
How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. But when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you, and you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into your glory. Can you say these two lines with me? I'll go slow. 25 and 26. Here we go. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. You guys are good readers because you say once again that God is the strength of my heart. Can you say that to a neighbor out loud? God is the strength of my heart. Please be seated. Don't you just love a God who gives perspective on things that we face in this life? Hmm. You know, Chicago has a reputation for many things. Uh, we are the city of broad shoulders. I don't know if you heard that one. I remember uh, being on an architectural tour where the name Chicago actually has to do with onions, uh, named after the French for wild onions. So there you go. Um, we are known as being the windy city, uh, and maybe you experience that every now and then. I'm sure glad it's not too windy today. Uh, whenever we have polar vortexes, it seems to be calm, so uh, that's good. But of all the things Chicago is known for, one of the things it's known for is corruption. Uh, for those who are in charge to be very, very evil, and maybe a prime example of this is a mobster named Al Capone. Now, a little bit of Al Capone, and may maybe you know some of his story. Uh, he was actually born in New York to an Italian family, uh, came to Chicago and moved his way up the chain. He started as a bouncer in a club, moved his way up. Moved his way up, uh, some would say, through murder, by killing those above him. And was known especially for bootlegging alcohol during the time of Prohibition. In fact, what's really interesting is I'm a bloomer and we had a brewery in Monroe. And they say that Capone actually kidnapped one of my relatives, Fred Bloomer, um, because uh, he was infringing on the selling of alcohol in the Chicago area, for what it's worth. Well, Al Capone uh, grew up in Cicero. That's where he lived. Um, and he was also known for the St. Valentine's Massacre. As Valentine's Day is coming up, uh, they say that he was behind the death of seven people from the Northside mob um, on that day. And while we know this all about Al Capone, and while most people knew this all about Al Capone, he was a celebrity. Uh, here he is at the Crosstown Classic, the Cubs playing the Sox in 1931, two years after the massacre. And um, he's got box seats there with his son getting autographs. It is said that the crowd would cheer for Capone, even though they knew what he was like. Now, he was a bit of a Robin Hood um, as he was there as supporting the unemployment fund during the time of the Great Depression. Um, but it's interesting that such an evil character would be celebrated would have box seats and a crowd cheering for him. And when I consider Al Capone, I have to consider what the psalmist just told us, which is this, 
I envy the arrogant because I see the prosperity of the wicked. Pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. They scoff and speak with malice, and with arrogance they threaten oppression. And so for me, I wonder who Asaph was talking about. Now, a little bit about him. Uh, he was appointed by David to work in the temple to be a psalmist. Um, and during the time of David was a man named Absalom. Does anyone know Absalom? And Absalom reached celebrity status. In fact, in the Bible, which uh, the Holy Spirit never wastes ink, it tells us how beautiful that Absalom was. In fact, it says something about his incredible hair even, which is interesting because the Bible doesn't usually give extra details, but does for Absalom. And Absalom was a bad man. He killed his brother and had to flee. And when he came back to the kingdom, uh, he tried to win the hearts of the people. For years, he sat by where the judges sit. And when someone was disappointed, he'd say, you know what, if only I was the judge, then I would hear your case. And it says by doing this and telling them what they wanted to hear, he won their hearts. Well, time went on and he actually planned a coup against his father. He takes over in the palace and does things in the palace that I don't even want to tell you about. But they're bad. And I wonder, as Asaph is watching in Absalom, if he's writing all of this. And then I wonder what we'd have today. Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl halftime. At halftime. Are there ever times we celebrate messages and say, good job, way to go, over things that are just wicked? When it comes to rappers and pop stars, when it comes to the messaging of this world, is it sometimes in polar opposite contradiction to the messages of God, and yet people are cheering them on? And what I find is this. So this is our first takeaway. Sin may pay, not in front of God, that's not what I mean, but sin might pay in an earthly sense in the short term, but never in the end. Another way of saying this is sin brings short-term pleasure for long-term pain. Because what happens is it doesn't last. What happens is eventually a fall is coming. And that is what Asaph observed. So Asaph goes on and he says this, how suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by their terrors. And can we apply that to some of the examples? Well, what about Al Capone? He was a murderer, someone who did uh, felonies. And, and why does he fall? Because <laughs> he doesn't pay his taxes. How swiftly? Don't pay the IRS. He dies at age 48 because of neurosyphilis. It got so bad for him, his misdeeds of the past had created this sickness where he actually has the mentality of a 12-year-old child. What about Absalom? The guy with the great hair? It's interesting, the poetic justice of that. Dies from his hair, caught up in a tree because of those golden locks, and then meets his end swiftly by one of David's commanders. And as I consider this, and Asaph writing all of this, and just observing the way of life, I, I have a hunch, and this is conjecture, of who Asaph is. I have a hunch that if you met Asaph, he would be an incredible light for the Lord. 
I have a hunch that he would wow you with his faith life, that he was a really upstanding person, someone that you just go like, wow, Asaph, you're doing it right. But you know where I think Asaph is? He's tired. He's tired of being good. He, he's the Christian who says, can't I just let loose on the weekend? Can't I just have a little bit of that short-term pleasure even though it's pain? He's tired of the fight. But no, let me take it further because Asaph's issue is deeper than that. What Asaph is really wrestling with is one of the devil's biggest temptations. It's his greatest pinning combination. And when the devil comes into your life, his greatest pinning combination is this. He will show up and he will try to convince you that God is not good. And so Asaph looks at the prosperity of the wicked and how he's punished for righteousness and the devil's whispering in his ear, God is not good. He isn't just and it ain't worth it. And this was such a critical point for Asaph that he says he almost slipped. He almost lost it all. But then I think of people today when tempted in the same way with suffering and suffering calling to question the goodness of God and how many people slip today? How many people have walked away how many of us have sinned in this way or that way because we were convinced, God, you're not good, at least when it comes to this or that or that? But is God good? Is he good? I know of no better way to tell you this than showing you Jesus. Jesus, who, when the little children were around, says, what in his compassion? Let the little children come to me. And do you see Jesus holding the baby, you know, and just having fun, getting on his knees? Jesus, who is all power, walking on water, driving out demons, saying, Lazarus, come out, and a dead man came from his tomb. Jesus, who is all wisdom, taught with authority, no insecurity, wowed the crowds. And when it comes to Jesus and our problem with suffering, you will never win the battle well unless you understand Isaiah 53. You will never get past this precipice, this slippery slope in the faith life if you don't take in first what is revealed about Jesus. Let me reveal it to you. That he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Does Jesus know what it is to suffer for doing good? Yes, because he suffered for you and I, so that you could know you're forgiven, so that you could know you'll never have to suffer that way. So you can know every day that you live through him, you're going to get better than you deserve if you're real with what you deserve. How good is our God? And so if you're taking notes, God's goodness is proved in the works of Jesus. 
And Asa found this. The goodness of God, that is. And it's what many people have found, not in spite of their suffering, but because of their suffering. You know, recently um, in our coaching network, we were talking about a man named Tim Keller. Uh, great, great theologian, uh, a guy that I'd recommend as far as reading some of his books, whether it be Counterfeit God, Prodigal God, um, On Prayer, just so many good things. Um, but Tim Keller, uh, a pastor in Manhattan, a uh, prolific author, is struggling with pancreatic cancer. Um, and for those of you who know cancers, some cancers are uh, curable, some are tame, others uh, lead almost certainly to death. And if you know about pancreatic cancer, um, almost certainly leads to death, and some say he has a year to live. Well, Tim Keller was being interviewed by someone recently, and just reflecting on life, and, and some interesting reflections uh, during his time of suffering. One is that he said he's his happiest he's ever been. He's his happiest he's ever been, even though he cries every day. That's really interesting. Another thing, um, he's not worried about what comes next when he dies. In fact, when he was diagnosed with this, he was writing a book on the resurrection and just the logical proofs of the resurrection, why, without a doubt, Jesus rose, even if you're an academic. But then the thing that struck me is this. He says he never wants to go back before he had cancer. And he dug in deeper on that and he said, because before when I was a preacher, I preached about God and I wasn't a hypocrite. But I didn't need God in the way I need him now. See, my days now, I, I can't do a day without fervently needing him to come through for me and, and almost do a miracle. And so because of this, he says, even though this came, I, I wouldn't go back and I wouldn't do it differently. And it's so interesting if you've seen a Christian get past the precipice of that question, is God good during suffering? If you see him get past that precipice and on What's really interesting is that the suffering was bad. Yes, it was. But many Christians would say, but I wouldn't do it differently. Because of how it drove me towards God. And so Asaph, he's struggling. He's, we don't know what he's wrestling with, but it's intense for him. And yet, what does he come to? He comes to saying this, that my flesh and my heart, it may fail through cancer or otherwise, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And what Asaph found is this, the Lord is our reward. In a nutshell, out of all the things this world has to offer, the things that will be stolen or rust or moth will destroy, the Lord is an everlasting reward. Isn't that what Job got to? You remember Job's story? And in the middle of his book after suffering, couched in the middle for emphasis are these words, I know my Redeemer lives. In the end, he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, and in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Can you not feel his longing for that day? Because he knows who the Lord is. Or how about St. Augustine? St. Augustine, who said, The reward which God bestows is himself. O blessedness, O unspeakable bliss. God is my portion. And how long? Forever. It's good to be in the house of the Lord because if you see this clearly, in this moment, through the Lord, you have everything you've ever needed. You have everything that makes life worth living. You have every reason for joy 
because you have the Lord. And that's all that matters. I try to teach premarital couples this. Fiancés come in and they're high on love. Remember those days? And they're tempted to believe uh, that that other person is going to complete them. Thank you, Jerry Maguire. They're, they're tempted to believe that I have found a God. You are going to complete all my needs and be there always for me in a perfect way. And whenever I sense that, I try to give my orange analogy. I say, that spouse, that fiancé is an orange. And I say, imagine if you relied on an orange to carry you through the whole day, your whole caloric intake was just an orange. Now, if you relied on an orange to do that, I think that you would get all the fruit in the inside. You'd squeeze every last drop. I think at the end of the day, I'd be tempted to eat the whole thing, even the skin, right? I will ask of the orange something the orange was never made to do because I think the orange is something it's not. And then I say, but our God, our God is breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And when you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you can treat an orange like an orange. Because that's even the best of people. I know some of you have been really disappointed by people. But you need to know, even the best people were only an orange. They were carrying the same sinful nature that you're carrying around, and they cannot complete you. They cannot always say the right thing. They cannot be completely faithful. They are just an orange. There are other oranges. Your career is an orange. I hope it's a good orange. But it cannot completely. Your kids. I love kids. Got two of them. Hi, orange. You're a beautiful orange. But you're just an orange. I could go on and on. Your boat, your hobby, your house, um, the Chicago area, your team, the Super Bowl, whatever it is, is an orange, and it was never made to fulfill you. No, God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. You know, it's interesting, as I reflect on the pastoral ministry, I want to tell you my Asaph moment. Are you ready? So next week, we're actually celebrating our 12-year anniversary. 12 years. But I want to take you back to the two-year anniversary, if I may. Our two-year anniversary um, was high on church planting. I still am. And try to do everything that the books told me and my mission counselor told me and that I thought would be really effective. And so here's what we did. We sent out 10,000 postcards to the neighborhood. Remember doing the bulk mailing, going to the post office, sending them out. Some of you in New Lenox know the postcards we sent, and uh, that was just it. Uh, we were starting a new sermon series on Elijah. And I thought, man, if ever there was a word from God, the story of Elijah, oh, man, he's a bad man in a good way. Uh, I was so excited. We, the first time, had free Aurelio's pizza, which we've carried through uh, since that time. Uh, except for this year, sorry, COVID. Um, <laughs> 
We had the band Koine, and if you've ever met Koine, they are just fantastic people. Not only are they the best musicians, but to a person, are personable and just fun to hang around with, and we had the kids on stage, and... Um, and I remember as a missionary sending 20 note cards, either in person or through the mail, uh, to people who I thought were interested. And I had a good rapport with this in the past of, you know, just giving that personal touch. So I'm driving over for the two-year anniversary. I'm waking up in the morning, and I'm a pretty passionate guy. And I got tears in my eyes. Because I just know if only 1%, no, if only 5% would respond to all that we've done, there's going to be a new family there or at least someone who needed to hear the Lord for the very first time, and we will have accomplished our mission. So I'm crying. And the day comes, and Koine was great. They're great guys. And Aurelio's fantastic. How can you? There's extra. The gospel was shared, and there were beautiful people because there always have been at Amazing Love. But you want to know how many first-time visitors? And I remember being at seminary, and another church planter came in with a similar story of all that he did and his heartache, and I could feel the emotion even as a seminary student, and and he was upset because they only had one. And then the point of his story was that angels rejoice over one. And I was thinking of his story and mine, and I'm like, God, they don't rejoice over zero. So now I'm driving back. And I got tears in my eyes for a different reason. I remember this conversation with God. I don't hear an audible voice, but it goes something like this. It's like, God, like you said, the fields are ripe and you want the harvest to come in to send out workers. I I thought I was a worker. I thought there was a field. I thought there was a harvest. And I don't know. God, you said, go and make disciples. And and then that's the great commission. And I'm going and I'm I'm trying. and, And I don't hear an audible voice, but this is what I hear, how I process My Heavenly Father says, Dustin, why'd you do this? Why'd you do this? Did you do it for the kingdom? Son, my kingdom's always been fine. My kingdom was here before you got here. Be there before you, after you leave. I know who are mine. My kingdom's fine. But son, if you did this because you love me, that's all I wanted. And it was that lesson that has been the only sustainable passion I have for doing ministry. That right now, I get to wake up and I get to say, Lord, you have my heart. And whatever you do with that, that's your business. But I know it's my business to give you mine. The only way I know how to do it is through this picture. It's all I have. And it's all I want. And so if you're taking notes, the reward of righteousness is not results. It's him. As Asaph was looking at what the other people had, he's comparing all the things he didn't have. But then he reflects and he says, but what I have is the only truest treasure, my avenue to love the Lord. That's our opportunity. And with the Lord are so many good things. 
So to close, I want to consider three things you have if all you have is the Lord. You know, Asaph went on and he said this, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. And what I see there is that we have his strength as our reward. As we look back on this past year and all that has transpired with protest, pandemic, and politics, how many times we needed the Lord's strength. How many times we needed him to come through for us. Back to Tim Keller's story, the reason he is so near to God is because of his daily dependence on God to be the strength. They go hand in hand. But there's more. Asaph says, you guide me with your counsel. And if you are in the Lord, then your reward is his word, his message to you. And I consider the the joy of his promises. Do you have a go-to promise for what you're dealing with? For the future in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you. For guilt and shame, as far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed your transgressions. For me this year, though the one that brought so much clarity is from Ephesians 1. And in Ephesians 1 it says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. This saved me so much passion and so much unrest to just know that all things, politics, pandemic, protest, everything was under the feet of Jesus and he works it for us, his bride, the church. What a reward that was to have this word. And the final thing we have, eternal life. Eternal life. What did he say? Sorry, it's not up there, but he said, afterward you will take me into glory. And, and you know, this, this kind of reminds me of a church planting book I read. I, I remember reading this one that says, and so it seems that church planting is just not worth it. Like, what? You shouldn't write a book on church planting. Except, except for eternity, which is a pretty big except. And it reminds me of what Paul says. If only in this life we have hope, we are to be pitied more than all people. But because he rose except for eternity, this makes sense. Or the disciples. There was this moment where It got too tough for some disciples. And what they heard Jesus asking or teaching, they just left. Said, I can't do it anymore. And so Jesus turned towards the 12, which he chose, and he says, hey, do you guys want to do the same? And Peter, flawed as he was, gave us a great answer. And Peter said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Those oranges I'm chasing, they can't raise me from the dead. But we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Messiah, the Lord, the true God. What else would we run after? How good is God? Better than we know. And on those days where you're tempted to believe that God is not good because you're suffering. May you see Jesus. May you see his heart for you. May you see all that he has done, is doing, and will do out of love for you. He asks for your heart because he has always given you his. Amen.